five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, we're going to hear about how NASA plans to commercialize communications and navigation services for low Earth orbit and out to the moon. The topic was the subject of the March 17th Future in Space Operations teleconference. The two presenters were Gregory Heckler, Engineering Manager at NASA's Space Communication and Navigation Program, and Andy Petro from NASA headquarters. Listen in. Thanks very much. And um, for those who don't know me, I'm, I'm Greg Heckler. I work for the Space Communications and Navigation Program at NASA headquarters. Um, I'm leading some of our, our commercialization activities that I'll speak about uh, shortly. And uh, I'll be follow, I'll do the first roughly half of the presentation or talk. And then Andy Petro, who has recently joined the SCAN team, has been leading a, a similar effort uh, in terms of uh, common nav uh, capacity or capability in, in the lunar domain. Um, so he'll talk a little bit about our initiatives to do that and in support of Artemis uh, in particular. Um, so with that, let's go to, to slide two. I wanted to give you a little bit of, uh, call it SCAN 101, who we are in the agency and, and what we do. Um, SCAN is really the program office and like the central point for NASA's space communication activities. Uh, the program was started in the mid-2000s to kind of consolidate and also coordinate across the agency in this technical area. Um, we manage uh, two primary uh, communication and navigation networks that I'll talk about in a, in a couple of slides. Uh, and, of course, we support uh, the vast majority of, of NASA missions. I'm sorry, I'm hearing an echo of uh, someone, if you could please mute. Um, we have a broad portfolio. Uh, obviously, we, we develop and om operate and manage uh, space uh, communication capabilities or networks. We also invest in technology, uh, things like optical communications. Um, those are actually uh, a fairly large portion of our, our portfolio. Um, things like deep space atomic clocks to aid navigation, um, a, a lot of activity there. We also perform spectrum management for the, the agency not only for communications, but protecting spectrum uh, that's used for science applications. I think there's, uh, those of you in the business have heard uh, some of the issues with uh, 5G and, and what's happening in the KA band. Um, we, were, we were part of that conversation over the last few years. Um, we also develop space communication standards, right? Um, a part of communicating, obviously, is this thing called interoperability. If uh, both uh, sides that are attempting to communicate don't speak the same language, um, they won't won't be able to do that. And so uh, establishing, maintaining standards is an important part of our portfolio. And we also do some international work and coordination. Uh, many of our NASA missions and international partner missions could not be accomplished without sharing capacity uh, between those agencies uh, and so we, we help broker those, those uh, cross-support agreements um, between ourselves, uh, JAXA, uh, ESA, and, and some of the international partners. I think uh, a highlight was uh, the Deep Space Network support of the, the recent Mars campaigns. Um, you know, obviously, we landed Perseverance, um, 
but there were those uh, Air National and Mars missions that also uh, went into to orbit around Mars a few months ago. So if you go to slide three, you know, our, our large vision, right, is to create an interoperable and re resilient space and ground uh, communications and navigation infrastructure. That's our, our prime job. And uh, some of our goals is obviously enabling uh, higher speeds. Um, there's also always a push from the agency for more bandwidth, much, much like your, uh, your teenagers at home, and then doing that in a robust, secure, and, and cost-effective way. Um, one of the main tiers that we're, we're standing up is actually in the near-Earth domain and potentially in the lunar domain, um, starting to leverage commercial capabilities more than we have historically. And I'll talk about uh, how, how we're going to do that and uh, how we see that as being a process that's going to take almost a, a decade. If you go to slide four, this is a, a very high level uh, OV1 almost of our NASA communication networks. Uh, we have the Deep Space Network uh, maintained and operated by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory on our behest, and it has three main stations, uh, one in Goldstone, California, uh, one in Madrid, Spain, and the third in Canberra, Australia. The DSN, for those who are unaware, are, are, is composed primarily of a 170-meter aperture at each uh, site and then several 34-meter apertures, um, which we're building more of currently to meet uh, expected demand in the lunar and, and planetary regimes as we move through the 2020s. We also have the Near Space Network, which is managed by Goddard Space Flight Center. That's composed of two architectural pieces. The first is the, the tracking and, and data relay satellite system, the TDRS. Um, right now, we, we have eight satellites on orbit. Uh, the most recent was uh, TDRS-M, or F-13, was launched and, and commissioned in, in 2018 um, to replenish that capacity, and uh, we'll be in a good position uh, for, for, for that, that fleet that constellation uh, well into the 2030s. We also have uh, smaller ground assets, uh, Earth stations or direct-to-Earth capacity uh, managed by, by Goddard and under the Near Space Network. Um, we have uh, a couple of 18-meter antennas, one at White Sands, um, and then uh, a smattering of smaller antennas all over the world. Uh, and significantly, we also get a, a, a significant portion of our, our capacity uh, on contract through commercial services, uh, through KSAT and uh, SSC uh, in particular. And right now, right now, those represent about 40 or 45 percent of our direct-to-earth, uh, near-earth capacity that we we offer to our users every year. So if you go to slide five, I wanted to talk a little bit about the context of our commercialization plan and uh, uh, how we got here, right? Uh, there's a great, I think Eric Berger from uh, Ars Technica has actually have a, a symposium this week about commercialization in the space domain. Um, this certainly didn't start um, uh, today, right? This is this plan is really built on um, activities that that the the agency started in the mid 2000s, first with the the COTS program, commercial. Orbital Transportation Services uh, Program that led into to the commercial cargo and the commercial crew program that we're starting to realize uh, basically the gains of, of that approach now. Um, 
There's also the low earth orbit commercialization uh, plan that's being led by uh, Phil McAllister and uh, EOMD. That's really about how we maintain um, human spaceflight presence in the LEO domain after uh, International Space Station goes away. Don't ask me when that's going to be. Um, but we want to establish a commercial capability where, where NASA doesn't have to own and operate, um, you know, effectively hotels or, or have uh, a capacity in LEO to A, uh, still um, host astronauts, and B, uh, support many of the activities that, that ISS um, does today in terms of having either pressurized space or unpressurized uh, space or capacity for us to uh, do our, our experiments in science that, that the ISS has done successfully. Um, as part of this larger LEO space economy that you may have heard of that we're trying to uh, engender, um, you know, SCAN, we, we took a hard look at ourselves and we understood that, that common nav is key, right? Uh, a spacecraft without communications down to the ground, without the ability to navigate. Uh, we also, we often call that space junk. And so there's an opportunity cost that was growing every day where if we were not uh, aware of and participating in and leveraging uh, the emerging uh, commercial capabilities, not only for putting up mass, right, up or, or executing things in space with spacecraft, but also emerging commercial services in this domain. And uh, we wouldn't be doing right by the agency and we wouldn't be doing right by our users if, if, we, if we didn't um, push into this area and also fairly aggressively. And so we see our plan being a supportive, a natural extension of the commercialization activities that were started uh, you know, over a decade ago, um, and, and are, are encouraged to see that what's happening in, in this environment in, in the 2020s. I will note for us at Scan and the Networks, this is probably the third swing of the commercialization pendulum. Um, actually, TDRIS, uh, which was started in the 70s, was a, a, a public private partnership, right? Where the prime contractor at the time was Western Union of all people was going to build and manage and operate the, the TDRS network, and we would lease services and purchase services uh, from that. That didn't work out for various reasons. And then there was also, of course, CSOC in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so as we go through this process, we're paying close attention to some of those lessons learned and challenging ourselves every day why, why things are different um, and uh, not to repeat those past mistakes. So if you go to slide six, here's the top uh, 10,000 or 100,000 foot view of our plan for commercializing services for our near Earth customer base, basically geo and below over the next decade. I'll start with the bottom, uh, that rapid commercializations of direct to Earth or Earth station services. Um, as I said previously, a significant portion of what we offer to our users is uh, actually gotten through contracts, uh, you know, uh, per pass costs from KSAT and SSC. We know there's those new commercial vendors out there that are operational or soon to be operational. It, and so we, what we want to do is just bring those, those entities under contract and offer those to our users as quickly as possible. And we think there's a way to do that uh, fairly rapidly over the next couple of fiscal years to accomplish that. And I'll also move some of our existing users that rely on government assets um, to commercial assets where there's commercial equivalents. 
For Tedris, for Space Relay, that's going to take longer. Um, even if you go look at the commercial SATCOM capabilities out there, uh, the Intel SATs, the Viasats, the Utel SATs of the world, uh, we couldn't move our existing users to those, those systems just because of frequency and compatibility. And so this is going to be a longer transition. Uh, what we're looking to, and I'll go into a little bit more detail, is to try to leverage that existing commercial SATCOM capacity and capability that's out there, that's on orbit today, and just see whether those systems could provide space-to-space services to our customers in LEO. We know they're not quite ready. We're not, they're not in a position where we could just go uh, put our, uh, a procurement for services and that being fairly straightforward. And so we're actually going to embark on a round of demonstrations first uh, before we try to, to acquire those commercial services uh, thereafter. And we're asking uh, the Glenn Research Center, who supports SCAN doing technology development and demonstration for, for many years, to actually lead that effort. So if you go to slide seven, here's a little bit more detail on that communication services project at Glenn. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more uh, commercial SATCOM capacity out there today than where we started in the 1980s. Um, however, that infrastructure, of course, it really was designed to meet the needs of terrestrial or aeronautical use cases. And it's not something where um, we could just go procure a space to space service today. And so what we want to do is make an investment uh, fund in partnership with with those companies um, that NRE that would be required to modify or adapt their systems to provide space-to-space service, and then to demonstrate that as a first step to validate the technical performance and increase confidence in our stakeholder community. Uh, you know, uh, SCAN being a, a service organization, you know, we don't design the satellites. Uh, we try to influence that um, where we can, our user satellites. Um, but uh, ultimately, they're in control of the decisions on what network capacity they need and how they're going to design their satellite to, to utilize that. And so we need to build stakeholder confidence as we move forward and saying, yeah, commercial SATCOM is real. It can provide a valid space-to-space service. And this is something, if you need space-based relay, you can transition away from TDRS, uh over time. And so, again, we're, we're, we want to establish uh, public-private partnerships. We're actually preparing a solicitation for that this year, and it should be out uh, this year. Uh, and we'll embark on a first round of demonstrations, again, to, to kind of validate that service and to show it, it's something feasible. We're not only going to evaluate those demonstrations on technical performance alone. We want to evaluate them on the business case, user burden, uh, burden and, of course, things like security. Those are some of the unique government requirements we, we can't waive. Uh, and it's very important for us for this to be cost-effective. Uh, so we want to be one of many. And so a, a little bit different approach with CSP is that we don't want to prescribe necessarily how those services need to be offered, just kind of the functional and operational requirements. Uh, we're not going to try to prescribe what band, uh, what you know, what type of coding or modulation you're using, just the fact that you can get, you can provide a, a reliable and a highly available space-to-space service that can connect a spacecraft in LEO or GEO and below to a user on the ground and, and vice versa and, and, and do that reliably. That's really the function we're looking for. 
uh, as well as some of our uh, potential other unique things like uh, delivery of tracking data, like delay, delay, and uh, range and Doppler data to perform orbit determination. And so we want to accomplish this this uh, first rolling wave, hopefully in the next couple of years. And then as that market emerges and changes, uh, hopefully to do subsequent demonstrations to capture more of the capability as it evolves and grows. Go to slide eight. Uh, we're trying to pursue a more uh, aggressive approach for commercialization of direct-to-earth or earth station uh, comms. We're asking Goddard Space Flight Center to do that. So uh, what they're doing is they're trying to create this, this virtual uh, network management layer or virtual uh, mobile provider interface where they can provide a flat interface to our users and be able to knit both government capacity, things like TDRS or some of our unique government ground stations, along with uh, the wealth of, of commercial capacity that's out there and provide one network to our users. Um, we need this robust and flexible architecture to make sure there's long-term support for our user community and we don't end up in a position where we, we may be relying on a single vendor. And of course, contribute to market stimulation and growth, right? If a, a vendor can onboard to one interface and potentially have access to all of our users, as opposed to only new users that would design specifically to their system, that could provide them a source of revenues uh, sooner rather than later and actually help their business case. And so at Goddard, we actually uh, went through a reorg this fiscal year to accomplish that. And uh, I think we're on a pathway to release a separate solicitation for services uh, probably next fiscal year and to meet that commercialization goal by uh, the end of 2023. If you go to slide nine, uh, I want to touch on a couple of challenges. Um, one is this issue of vendor lock-in and, and long-term flexibility. Again, without standard interfaces, missions run the risk of vendor lock-in. Um, you know, it's hard to go change the spacecraft uh, after you've launched it. Um, historically, the standards bodies that we've supported and, and led have been really centered around NASA and our, our partner uh, international space agencies. What we're, we're, we're looking to do is increase a commercial uh, commercial use or, or participation in those bodies, but it's also doing things where we look to the commercial world to define a, a common set of standards. And we know that's not going to happen today. That may be a story that emerges over the next decade. And so we're, we're actually investing in software-defined radio technology, and in particular what we're calling the wideband multilingual user terminal that could uh, – have the freedom to flexibly tune across a wide band uh, of frequency and then also speak multiple providers' languages or their standards to be able to use not only our government system, but those commercial systems with maybe proprietary or, or unique uh, standards that they or APIs they rely on. And so that's a, uh, something we're going to demonstrate this year. Uh, right now we're focused on KA band because that's where most of the commercial capacity is. There's also some complementary services in SNL, but SNL bands, um, but that's not as uh, much of a, a technical challenge. And so we look to do a ground demonstration of that and uh, hopefully a flight this fiscal year and hopefully a flight demonstration uh, a couple of years thereafter. Um, legacy backwards compatibility is going to be an issue. 
uh, what happens if we have a mission that needs a particular asset and the business case of supporting that asset no longer goes away. Uh, you know, there's contractual mechanisms we may employ to help protect that or, or, or eliminate the cost risk to the government. And then, of course, compliance with government security requirements. I think we're all aware that NASA in this era of uh, nation state led uh, cyber attacks is a, a quote unquote, you know, you could call them a juicy target. And so we can't put ourselves in a position where our missions are, are maybe more vulnerable since we're going to rely, since we will or plan to rely on commercial capacity and assets. And so those are those uh, compliance with those requirements is really mandatory and, and, and uh, unwaverable as we move forward. On slide 10, I just wanted to touch a little bit on uh, how we're changing how we operate on the standards conversation. This is a good example. Um, we want to formally participate in the, the 3GPP uh, standards body. Um, the 3GPP, right, was put together uh, for terrestrial wireless comms to address the some of the incompatibility issues with the first and, and second gen um, um, wireless systems, right? Uh, the consortium, the commercial entities got together and realized um protecting their market base, right, by relying on proprietary standards was not, you might well win in the short term, but in the long term, that's not where, that wouldn't be beneficial. And so we see an opportunity within 3GPP and what's happening in the 5G architecture potentially to influence that and, and address that standardization or interoperability issue. Um, 5G is already looking at how architecturally in the standards you can knit together satellite capacity with uh, terrestrial wireless uh, cell towers and to give a, a handset or a user on the ground or in the air or on the sea a kind of a seamless experience where they can roam and have uh, a capacity in range of a cell tower, that's fine, but if they're outside of that, that you would be able to rely on, on satellite assets and provide uh, kind of continuous uh, connectivity. What we would like to do is interject our use case, that of a space-based user, see if it's feasible from a market perspective, but also technically with the 3GPP standards themselves, and see if that use case could be addressed. Um, and so that's something we've actually entered guest membership now but look to be a, a formal member um, potentially this fiscal year and start that uh, technical work, uh, hopefully in FY22, uh, if, if that standards group um, uh, basically believes it's something of value uh, for them to support. So we're also changing how we operate as we move through this commercialization process. So if you go to slide seven, a short summary. Right. In the end, we want to seek and provide access to a broader set of commercial capabilities that we know is out there, that we know will grow over the next decade, and provide kind of a streamlined, seamless, seamless interface for the provision of those services to our users. Um, this will ensure we have capability not only for our larger missions, but also for the growing set of small sat missions we're seeing from the agency. Our government assets are really good at talking to one thing at a time. Uh, we're not uniquely capable of meeting um, the, the needs of, of hundreds of small sets if, if those are, are realized over the next decade. 
we'll always be there doing our job uh, and providing uh, seamless uh, services to mission and, and going about through this transition in a seamless way. And we are encouraging and starting in, in many different ways to encourage participation and engagement from industry as we move forward in this approach. We know we can't do all the technical work. Uh, we're not in a position to necessarily tell companies how to do something. We want to be in a position where we express our user needs and, and um, look for uh, industry provide solutions to, to provide those. So with that, uh, I don't think I'm going to break for questions here, but I'll, I'll turn it over to Andy Petro and to talk about uh, what he's doing in the lunar domain that, that's related to this initiative. And so I'll, I'll get off and um, go to slide 12, please. Okay, thanks, Greg. Uh, so if you're on slide 12, that's the uh, cover page for the, the next part of this about the uh, lunar communications and navigation architecture. And uh, you see depicted there the front and the back of the moon. Um, and of course, we're we're interested in uh, providing coverage to the entire moon and the space around it. Uh, so we can go to slide 13, which is the overview of our proposed early lunar com architecture. And when I say that, we we always mean to imply communications and navigation. Um, because, uh, you know, together they're, they're both uh, the important part of the infrastructure that we, we intend to provide. So just looking at this, uh, going across, uh, the, you know, the overall architecture is, is um, begins with the well-established networks that, that have supported spaceflight for decades and will be there to support our upcoming lunar activities. Um, you know, we have the deep space network. Uh, there are upgrades being done to that that Greg had touched on to uh, improve our capability to support the upcoming missions, in particular the Artemis um, lunar landing missions and the Gateway and, and other activities. Uh, in, in addition to DSN, though, we're very interested in expanding that capability to include additional stations and uh, and commercial capability, and we're encouraging all the lunar users to um, design for a capability to use uh, the 18 meter class type antennas or, or smaller, uh, rather than the larger um, uh, stations like the uh, you know the capabilities like the 34 meter um, antennas at the, at the deep space network stations in order to offload those um, for their use for uh, deeper space missions and and uh, and move move the lunar traffic to to uh, the smaller size dishes so we, we have the air stations then um, what's what's really new and different um, that we'll be looking at and where we're putting a lot of our attention right now is in orbital relays um, out around the moon, uh, providing capabilities to link lunar users back to Earth. Um, the importance of that is if you look at the moon, uh, this depicts the South Pole uh, at the top of the of the picture. Um, and you know we're intending to uh, land at near the South Pole. And even though 
theoretically, you have direct earth communication from there, from anywhere on the near side. Um, near the South Pole, the earth is going to be very close to the horizon. Um, and so, you know, depending on the exact time you, you land and uh, other conditions, you, you, you may not have reliable direct earth uh, communication at all times. And then as you move around on the surface from, from that landing site, you, you again might find yourself going out of, out of line of sight to earth. And so having a relay overhead, uh, an orbiting asset could be extremely valuable, um, to provide more flexibility in when you schedule those missions and, uh, to have more reliable service throughout the time that you're operating that mission, you know, not to be in extremely uh schedule constrained uh and and to have have um options um you know if things are not going according exactly according to the predetermined schedule so that that's where we see a, a real big value in having that and the gateway will have the ability to do relay from its um near recto near rectilinear halo orbit nrho um but we are interested in, in really uh, providing additional capability that's not dependent on its presence and its operational uh, requirements, but would be there to um, you know, provide the service in a more general way as a relay. The other very important aspect is if we, you know, we're anticipating that there will be uh, robotic science missions of the far side, uh, NASA is, uh, targeting the first one of those uh, for the second quarter of 2024. So that's coming up very soon. Uh, from the far side, you it's essential to have a relay uh, to communicate back to Earth. And so um, we see that as the other important uh, capability. There'll also be orbiting spacecraft that might make use of the relay as well. And um, uh, another thing we're, we're interested in is introducing surface communications assets as early as possible. Uh, at some time in the future, it may become even valuable as, as a relay point, but uh, initially it, it could be important just to provide good continuous communications for uh, astronauts and mobile, um, uh, you know, uh, assets on the surface. Uh, a uh, a rover um or or whatever we might place them in in the vicinity of the landing site but being able to 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 uh, spread out over a larger area and and maintain communication um at all the, all times through that so overall you know we see you know the communication and navigation infrastructure lowers the barriers to entry for new missions and and capabilities and and so that will support an expanding robotic and human activities at the moon. And, and in that sense, it's, it's a virtuous cycle in which um, having that capability will enable more missions to be proposed, uh, undertaken at, at, a, at a lower cost than would otherwise be possible if each individual mission had to uh, uh, provide for its own communications infrastructure, especially as you start looking at, you know, going to the far side and at the poles and limbs and other places where it's not as easy to uh, communicate. So we see it uh, really 
providing access to, to parts of the moon that that we could get to in terms of of transportation, but would otherwise be inaccessible. So I'll go on to uh, slide 14, and that shows the evolution that we see uh, being possible as we go into the future. The first box shows now to 2024, and you know our initial needs of being able to support a far side science mission, the South Pole Human Exploration, and uh, improving and expanding uh, position navigation and timing services independent of the ground stations. So that's another important aspect and something that can be part of the relay capability. Uh, and of course, our implementations through the existing ground networks, the initial relay capabilities. And one of the things, and I guess I did mention um, on the first chart, but we'll we'll go back to that subject uh, in a later chart, is the concept of LunaNet compatibility. LunaNet is um, a framework of of uh, standards and an operational concept that will enable interoperability between all these different uh, elements, whether those are are relay providers or uh, other spacecraft or uh, assets on the, on the surface uh, that so that you can have actually multiple different service providers um, working with multiple different users and uh, in an interoperable kind of network. So that's the concept of LunarNet that I'll come back to uh, a little bit more. Then uh, in the next phase, 24 to 28, um, you know, we see the needs expanding the global coverage, uh, longer, more complex missions, greater mobility. You know, one of the things that's important about the moon is, you know, the day-night cycle, 14 days of, of continuous sunlight, followed by 14 days of no sunlight at all, uh, extremely low temperatures. Um, but as we solve the technical challenges of, of, of systems that can operate through that, through those day-night cycles, uh, we'll, we'll see, you know, uh, more continuous missions and really indefinitely long missions. And so that we're going to see a, a big increase in, in activity there. Uh, and for that, you know, we're looking to have a comprehensive relay network uh, surfacing um, and, and nav assets and, and the full LunaNet services that I'll, I'll be talking about in a minute. And then 20, 2028 and beyond is the phase where we expect more sustained surface and orbital presence. Um, and, you know, we expect this infrastructure to, e, to, to evolve uh, based on the growing needs and, and a, a commercial market. And we see, you know, the infusion of, of new technology uh, into those, um, including uh, things like more autonomous navigation and timing services and optical communications. So going to uh, yeah, chart 15, uh, comes back to, to talking a little bit about the utility of, of lunar comm relays. And so as I mentioned, you know, it's essential for far side operations but it's also very high value for polar operations or any locations where the, you don't have a reliable direct-to-Earth view uh, due to terrain um, or the fact that the Earth is just very close to the horizon. Um, 
or or other uh, uh, landforms around you, terrain that, that will block your view. Uh, another important thing that it does, though, and this is where I think we would see uh, the market begin to expand once we have the capability in place, is it reduces the initial link length for the for the user. Uh, so for a user to communicate back to Earth versus to relay, they could have a much um, you know have a lower power, smaller uh, communications uh, system on board, but still be able to communicate effectively back to Earth by having the relay uh, providing that. So that may enable a lot of users that would otherwise be very limited, uh, especially things like rovers and um, you know distributed uh, instrument networks, for example, that might be located all over the moon. Each of those. Uh, communicating, but only needing to reach a nearby relay as opposed to communicating all the way back to Earth. Then the other, another advantage is you can begin to have local links between different users at the moon that don't need to rely on uh, transmitting all the way back to Earth and then from the Earth back again to, um, to talk to each other. So it, it could be uh, very valuable for that. Uh, and then the ability to aggregate data uh, at, at a relay from multiple users and then uh, send that back to Earth um, in a way that you can better manage the demand that you're placing on the, the Earth receivers for that type of operation. Um, and then, uh, as we mentioned, the, the relays can host navigation beacons and, and other um, equipment that can provide the, the position, navigation, and timing services to the users and, and other situational awareness information. And then uh, just the fact that you you can have a more robust and flexible operations. Um, you know, you we, we would expect a, a comprehensive relay network to have a certain amount of redundancy uh, and, and flexibility in how it can operate. So, uh, you know, it, it's if it if, if even if we didn't have these um, more pressing needs for communicating to the far side or with uh, exploration missions at the South Pole, the, the relay capability would still make a lot of sense um, in the overall evolution of the architecture. And I just want to note that there is broad interest in in communications relay services uh, both in the U.S. and in far, with among foreign companies. Uh, among our international partners and, and at uh, many of the NASA centers. We did a request for information for this um, back in October uh, for Lunar Com Relay and Navigation Services, and uh, there is a, a great interest, and uh, we're hoping to be proceeding with, with efforts to um, procure those types of services uh, for those early missions. And going to... Uh, yeah, chart 16 is is the definition of LunarNet. It's a term that's been used by a lot of people in, in somewhat different ways. Uh, I've tried to capture what we intend when we talk about it in this context as a set of, uh, a set of cooperating networks, uh, a framework of mutually agreed upon standards to enable an operability, interoperability. Uh, and we, it's not something that just will be built someday or created someday, but we intend for it to be part of the earliest missions and then accommodate expansion and, and evolution. Uh, 
and be used by a diverse set of you know commercial government service providers in, in a open evolvable architecture and the services can include data transmission uh, position navigation and timing services and, and also situational awareness information uh, that can be shared among all of the users what what LunaNet is not is, is that it is not a particular satellite or constellation of satellites uh, nor does a project program or organization and that, and I note that because sometimes the, the term is applied in that way and, and that's that's not how we are intending to uh, use it when we're, we're talking about it in this context and uh, yeah and then the last chart I have is it just outlines um, what's envisioned as the, the, the set of LunaNet services um, and you know the, the, the first one um, is the networking services which is the the sort of traditional data transmission from the um, user back to Earth through one or more nodes, which could be a relay at the moon, could be a relay orbiting the Earth as part of that network. Um, uh, data might transfer through different pathways depending on the circumstances from one time to another. Uh, it will also allow data exchange among the lunar users and um, you know the, the you know different nodes could be used interchangeably as, as needed to provide uh, the most efficient service um, at, you know at a particular time for that particular user. Uh, the position navigation and timing services um, services would be would involve the the, the nodes generating and exchanging PNT information. Um, and you know some of the advantages of that would be uh, things like collision avoidance, um, and finally situational awareness um, would be using this this LunarNet um, framework as a means to um, distribute, disseminate um, space weather alerts, conjunction alerts, and um, and also using the communications and navigation signals themselves um, for certain types of science uh, investigations where they might be helpful. So that, that, that's the uh, kind of overview of how we view the, the architecture um, and, you know, a lot of emphasis on the relay capability because that's the, the new and different part of this. But, of course, we're still heavily reliant on the established ground station networks and um, and other infrastructure. So I think that completes what I was going to share. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. And hey, if you like our podcast, please submit a review to Apple Podcasts. Your review will help others discover us. Thank you. <laughs>